Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Dr. Thomas J. Tobin, an author, speaker, and scholar on higher education quality. We will discuss his comic book, The Copyright Ninja, as well as his other projects. So welcome to the show, Tom. Thank you very much, Brian. It's a pleasure to be on Ipsy Dixit. Great. Yeah, I'm delighted to talk to you. It's been really fun interacting with you on Twitter, and I really enjoyed this super cool comic book. But before we start talking about the comic book project specifically, I wonder if you could tell listeners a little bit about yourself, sort of what you do, and maybe how you became interested in copyright law. Absolutely. Uh, Who I am, I'm right now a founding member of the brand new Center for Teaching, Learning, and Mentoring at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. But my background is in distance teaching and learning. And in fact, I'm talking to you now from my home office in State College, Pennsylvania, because my partner is a faculty member at Penn State. We live here. I've been remote for Wisconsin for five years now. And that's the background that really got me into copyright. So what I do, I tell my nieces and nephews that I teach teachers how to teach. And I also tell them that I'm in the 44th grade because I was one of those crazy people who went through, got a PhD in English literature in when I was 28, and then went back to school for a second master's degree in information science, went back for a certification in online teaching, went back for a certification in project management, went back for another certification in, uh, what's the last one? core competencies and accessibility stuff, various things. And so I've been a lifelong learner for a long time. But how I became interested in copyright, we really have to dial it back to 1996. I'm a graduate student, just got my first master's degree, and I'm starting a PhD program. And I got really interested in a British 19th century art and poetry group called the Pre-Raphaelites. And many of your listeners don't know who they were, so I'd encourage you to go take a look at these folks. A professor of mine brought back some slides from the Tate Museum in Britain, and I just had this visceral reaction. These are the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my life. I need to know more about the people who created these images. And it turned out that these group of artists and poets were really trying to change their society in 19th century Britain. So like, uh, unlike most people, I didn't do a master's thesis or a PhD work on the movement itself. I actually was a scholarly bibliographer. So I was tracking down all of the journals, newspaper articles, magazine takes on this group in 19th century sources. And so I got really intimately knowledgeable about the library systems in the United Kingdom, in Canada, in the United States, in Australia, and even Germany, Japan, Russia, because there were articles on these folks in those native language newspapers and journals. And the copyrights were just all over the place. You know, we give you permission just for scholarship. We give you permission broadly. The reproduction rights were all over the place when I would not be able to go physically into a library and work. That meant, although, that the research archive 
that I put together called the Pre-Raphaelite Critic. It's still actually up and people use it in 19th century studies today. But it was one of the first online archives about this art history and poetry movement. And I had to get permission from lots of different right holders in order to be able to post things online. And so I had an early sort of graduate student baptism by fire in the differences among copyright in the U.S., copyright in European and world contexts, Berne Convention, things like that, and also licenses and permission. And it made my head spin. You know, I'm not a lawyer and I didn't want to go down that road necessarily. Then fast forward a couple of years, I get a job at a two-year college in Pennsylvania. And this is right around 1998. So I'm helping them adopt Blackboard version one, and they want me to help them put together online courses. And I'm a 20-year-old person with a PhD, and I don't even really know how the settings go on my laundry yet. And I'm still feeling my way through on that kind of stuff. And here I have lots of faculty colleagues coming to me asking, can I make a copy of this? Can I use this in my online course? And I didn't know the answers to those things. So you know, back in 2000, for example, I went to the Distance Learning Administrators Conference down in Pine Mountain, Georgia, back at the time. And uh, I presented on copyright for distance educators. I'm embarrassed by what I shared back then because I got into the weeds. I didn't even know to give a disclaimer that I'm not a lawyer and this isn't legal advice. But, you know, 20, 2001, I'm presenting on copyright in distance education at a virtual IP conference at Temple University in Philadelphia. And this was about the time people were wrestling with the Napster case, the two live crew sampling issue. This is when the Beastie Boys uh, wanted to put out a song called Rock Hard, which sampled the drum and uh, most beautiful guitar lick from Angus Young from ACDC. And Malcolm Young told them, yeah, we love you guys, but we don't, we don't support that sampling stuff. And so they couldn't put out the song. Lots of people in higher education were really worried about the new online format being a place where we all needed to know about copyright permission and IP, and nobody knew at that time. So the really bad advice that I was giving people at that time was body of practice oriented, right? I talked about the 10% rule. I talked about you can't copy more than one chapter or one chart or 250 words of poetry, and you can't repeatedly copy the same work. And this is horrible advice, right? And of course, this was my introductory level. I'm down in the weeds, so I'd better make sure that other people never cross the line. Fast forward a little bit to 2013. You know, it's 10, 15 years later, and uh, William Fisher at Harvard Law has his Copyright X course that he has opened to the world. I applied, and I'm proud to say I didn't get in. That, but that what, what happened, though, is he also shared all those materials freely, and I took a really deep dive into copyright at that point. And I realized how much more complex copyright issues are for most faculty members, most instructional designers, and why, if you ask a lawyer, the answer is always it depends. So what I really wanted to do was start to think about that large body of copyright and then get it down into something simpler. So I started talking about copyright and IP for faculty members just by asking the question, what is actually a copy? And people could answer that or they couldn't. 
And then what we talk about that is and isn't copyright, things that are in the public domain or government, federal government works that are, are created without copyright. And then the P-A-N-E fair use factors, purpose, amount, nature, economic impact. Yes, I've changed those words in the order from what's actually in the law. And then talk about licenses and permission trumping the law. That was a much easier sentence to say prior to 2016. But then we talked about ownership, what's work for hire, and then doing those traditional disclaimed things in higher education. Why is it that faculty members don't fall under work for hire? And is that a tradition? Is that policy? Is that somewhere in between? And so that gets us up to why I got interested in copyright. And we're just on the doorstep of the book itself. So thanks for, for asking about the background. It's a, it was a really weird winding path. Well, so one thing I'm really interested in, based on the background you described, is sort of what it's been like over the course of the last 20 or 25 years to see kind of evolution or change or different perspectives on copyright law, specifically in relation to the kind of new dominance of the internet and social media and uh, kind of online accessibility from the perspective of someone who's informa in information science like yourself, as opposed to the perspective of someone like me kind of looking at these problems from a kind of legal doctrinal position at a law school. Absolutely. And it it's been a weird set of conversations, and I'm grateful to many of my colleagues who are actually IP lawyers who've been sort of keeping me on the straight and narrow over that whole time. So I acknowledge a debt there. In terms of when online courses especially were brand new, so say 1997 to probably about 2005, 2006 for most of us. That was a time when it was kind of the Wild West. We had librarians, uh, the folks in University of Texas uh, system, they put together TILT, the Texas Information Literacy and Technology page. Uh, and it was a, a walkthrough of how can I use content that someone else has created and making copies? How do I do that in an ethical and legal fashion? And that TILT page started out in the late 1990s as literally three web pages. And it's now more pages than any human could read in a lifetime. And that's the, the, the big arc of the story that I'm about to tell. And it's one of the reasons why I wanted to go in a different direction. Because as online courses started to solidify into here is what a traditional online course looks like. And we couldn't say traditional online course years ago. And now we have to do, differentiate between a traditional asynchronous doesn't happen in real time thing and emergency pandemic remote teaching that happens over a video connection live. All those kinds of things are, are recent additions. But when we think about the, the copyright and IP that people were sharing early on in online courses, even librarians, even information science people were saying things in very simple but very draconian ways. The restrictions were don't copy it, don't use it. If, it. if it's even close to you have a question in your mind, just don't. And that was to avoid legal liability. It also meant that most people who were designing online courses or teaching using technology 
really were leaving opportunities on the table to be able to make copies of and use things under fair use or under permission or under licenses that they otherwise would have been able to do had they known to be a little bolder, a little more analytical in their own thinking. And that's where we end up in about 2013 to 2015 we started to see a sea change among people who were training other folks for copyright. And we started, no offense to the podcast, listening to the lawyers less and listening more to the folks who were actually using the content. It was also around 2013, 2014, that lots of people started to create their own materials. The tools got good enough so you didn't have to be a web coding nerd like me in order to put together your own web page, right? Back in 1996, I taught the first online course at Indiana State University because I was traveling for scholarship to the Library of Congress and then attending a conference in Georgia. So I whipped up a web page and got an IRC chat channel, and that was our online course. Fast forward a ways, though, and anybody can create. And suddenly people are starting to ask, well, if I created this, who owns it? If I put it in my learning management system, does that mean that my university owns this material? Could I take that and work as an adjunct instructor somewhere else and bring those materials with me? And there weren't terribly clear answers about those who owns what kinds of things at that time. So uh, if I'm hearing your question well, one of the big challenges for all of us in faculty development was Literally, if I create something and it's now put into a fixed format somewhere, should I be doing that on my own time? Should I have a conversation with my colleagues in the administration of my college or my university? And so those were questions that didn't have decent answers at that point. Well, that's definitely one of the several threads that you address in in the comic book. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the comic book project, sort of how it got started and what made you think about kind of approaching copyright education for educators in, in that format? There's a profound answer to that question and there's a really practical answer to that question, right? The profound answer is that I didn't really have enough of an understanding that I wanted to do something at the length of a scholarly article or a book. In fact, I did create a scholarly article in 2014 called Training Your Faculty About Copyright When the Lawyer Isn't Looking. And that got published in the online journal of distance learning administration. And that was kind of my current understanding and the simplest way of thinking. Know what's a copy. Know that when you don't make a copy, copyright doesn't really apply. If you are making a copy, you have your fair use criteria, and then licenses and permission trump the law. Those are the only things that faculty members really need to know. Now, that, that leaves them open to lots of little roads they can go down that would get them in trouble. At the same time, most people don't even have that level of an understanding of how to work with copied materials and how to think about the content that they themselves are creating. So why a comic book? One, I'd already done the scholarly article and it had, what, 12 hits. <laughs> and I wanted to do something that was a little more broadly applicable. The other part of it was I'm a giant nerd. Uh, 
And I've been a video gamer and into comics and uh, Star Wars, Star Trek, all the stereotypical sorts of things, weird music, um, Hawaiian, Hawaiian tiki and exotica music, all those kinds of things. And uh, listeners, you can't see it, but Brian is smiling and nodding like crazy right now. So I really wanted to find a story that would address all of the questions that my faculty and instructional design colleagues had been asking me for a decade and a half. And I wanted to do it in a way that people could see themselves in the story, could take away some simplified lessons and know enough to be dangerous, all while understanding that this is not a deep dive at all, that this is a simple way to understand copyright for, for the role that you play at your institution. So I thought, okay, well, how would I do this? I happened at the time also to be reading a book called, and I think it was uh, from Mark Neese, yeah, from the Savannah College of Art and Design. It's called The Art of Comic Book Writing. I was actually writing a comic book for another reason. And I thought, well, I could do this one too. So I whipped up a script and a series of descriptions of what the panels might look like. I went out onto deviantart.com and found uh, Michael Watson and his team of folks. Uh, Michael is a comic book artist uh, in Cleveland, Ohio, and he does uh, comics for his own characters, and he also does comic work for hire. And the thing that I found out after I hired them is they also do commission work for Marvel. So the comic book that, that we're talking about is in deed, if not in word, a Marvel comic. And I'm just jazzed about that. But the, the story was what really drove the format. I wanted to tell the story about a campus lawyer who gets asked all these copyright questions and says, it depends, it depends, it depends. And then he thinks... But if I weren't in this position, if I weren't the campus lawyer, I could tell them some more simple things. And so he goes to his martial arts practice and, you know, he's in his sort of martial arts gear. And he says, I have a ski mask in the car. I could do this. Right. And he puts the ski mask on and he writes up his simplified things and he has to go deliver them secretly to all of his colleagues. So he has to get past the barking dog at one colleague's house and he has to sneak into a lab where another colleague teaches without being detected and leave these sorts of clues for his colleagues. And I had a lot of fun with this. And, and if you flip through the, the comic book, you, you'll notice that Michael had a lot of fun doing the drawings as well. And we go into some of the history of, of why copyright is now a legal defense rather than a right and go all the way back into sort of founding fathers kinds of things uh, where the copyright was 14 years and it was priests and professors holding most of those rights. And once the the comic was taking shape, I went to my traditional academic publishers and said, I have this thing. And they said, we have no idea how to market this thing. So then I went to the folks who do superhero comics and I said, I have this thing. And they said only 10 people would buy it. And so I ended up, uh, here's a, a one last little twist to the story. My partner and I lived in Chicago for many, many years. I was at Northeastern Illinois University, big Hispanic-serving institution. My partner was uh, in charge of a teaching and learning center at Triton College, one of the two-year colleges uh, outside the city in River Grove. My partner got an offer to become a faculty member at Penn State. So we moved. Just after the, cop the comic was created, 
and we happened to move two miles away from one of the largest printing houses in North America. So I literally went down the street and said, can you give me a quote? And they started cranking out copyright ninjas for me in two weeks. I brought them to every conference I went to, put the the email on blast, and uh, lots of people bought them, enjoyed them. They ended up being gifts for entire departments full of folks and uh, you know, went out on a speaking trail for it as well. So the comic book itself was really a way to encapsulate what I hope is a simplified understanding for lay people about how copyright actually works in higher education. I guarantee you I've left out important things. I guarantee you I got maybe one or two things wrong. At the same time, the comic book is not meant to be, you know, William Fisher's copyright X course that is training your one L's in, in the basics, uh, you know, and getting way down into things. It's that simple story. And I love finding unorthodox ways of doing storytelling. So it's really all about the narrative. Yeah. I mean, one thing I really liked about the approach you took in the comic book is the way it kind of brings some of the perspective that I've gotten from the center for media and social impact kind of best practices approach but kind of condenses and makes it accessible in a kind of graphic format that, that I really enjoyed. And, and, and as you say, really has the perspective of a person who's thinking about like, how could the lawyer provide the advice that we need in order to understand how to do our job in a way that's going to be effective and protected and getting us to where we need to go from a kind of pedagogical sort of benefits perspective. And, and I'm grateful to hear you framing your response in precisely that way, because that, that makes me just happy to hear. One of the, the goals that I had with this comic book was to empower people to feel that they did not have to go to their counsel every single time they wanted to make a pedagogical decision that they had the understanding at a high level that would keep them on the right side of the law and also allow them to practice ethics in a good way with just that back of the envelope understanding. So I want to give people permission to be confident and also to know where the point is where that confidence runs out. And you really should have a conversation with your librarians, with your institutional counsel, with the folks who know all of the little tiny details, because, you know, every time you've been on panels like this, right, Brian, where you, you talk about a general theory or idea. And then the very first question is, uh, my sister made copies of this thing from a journal in Slovakia in 1972 that no longer exists. And can we put those things on the internet? And the response is, let's talk offline about that, right? So I'm really grateful to to know that we can give people empowerment to so that they're not following just those draconian don't copy it or 10% rule kinds of stuff. Give them a little sophistication to know how to use material. And I hate the word use, by the way. I always say copy or 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 other kinds of things because use can be so many different things, but how do people make use of material that other people have created and how do they share material that they've created in ways that 
reflect and respect their ethics and the boundaries that they need to be inside of. So, so Tom, could you tell me a little bit uh, about what it was like to work with the comic book artists who drew the characters and helped you create the book? Like, how did you tell them what you wanted the comic book to accomplish? And also, you know, what did you say to them about what you wanted it to look like, both in terms of the characters and the structure of the book and like the flow between the panels and, and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, it was both a lot of fun and also one of the hardest things I've ever done. Uh, the a lot of fun part was back to, I mentioned that book by Mark Neese from the Savannah College of Art and Design, and it's called The Art of Comic Book Writing. And if I didn't have that book, I really wouldn't have known how to speak the language with the art team. And Michael was, was really supportive uh, of how what I wanted to do and at the same time, he hadn't got the slightest idea what copyright and IP was all about, right? This was a commission for him. So what I did was I created a script for the comic book. And if your listeners aren't familiar with comic books, comic books start out as scripts like movie scripts do, right? So here's what the cover should probably look like. Here's page one, and page one has seven panels on it. And I'm envisioning that there's six panels in a grid and then one panel at the bottom that spans the whole length of the page. In panel one, these characters do these things. So Bill Ellswater, the lawyer, is driving into his campus and he is wondering about these things. And in a thought bubble, Bill thinks this stuff and I'd write that out. In panel two, here's Bill talking with one of his colleagues and he and his colleague are in this kind of setting. And then here's the dialogue that they say. One of the challenges for me was that I've done some script writing before for film and for plays. and in those kinds of instances, the dialogue can last forever and ever and ever. In a comic book bubble, you've got maybe a hundred words before you need to go to the next thing. So pacing, understanding what the pages look like, how those layouts flowed. I gave Michael and his team that script. And then they said, this is impossible. You can't do that. This should be two panels. Maybe this would work better if we had the characters swooshing between two panels. And so that kind of dialogue was a lot of fun for me. It was a real learning experience. It was something that I had never done before. And I love getting into places where I'm not expert at stuff. I like being a beginner, learning things about processes, even if it's on a subject where I do have some expertise. And this was definitely that kind of project. The whole process of creating the script and then working with Michael and his team to having final computer art that could be sent to a printer, that took about four months. And I later learned that this was rocket fast. <laughs> so uh, I apparently skipped over a couple of steps that I probably should have done, and it turned out okay as it went. There's actually a, an Easter egg in the book. And uh, if you go to, let's see, where is that? Yep, there's a, the, at the, the center gate. So in the center fold, you've got uh, actually the, the ninja explaining purpose, amount, nature of the work, economic impact. And you have a Canadian busting in there and saying, we have two other fair use factors for fair dealing in Canada. There's actually two panels at the bottom of the page that are almost identical. 
And uh, that's a mistake. <laughs> There's That should have only been one panel, but uh, that's the only one that we can find in the book. Everything else was copy edited really well. And uh, Michael and his team, he's got a, a letters person and an inker and a, a colors person. And they did all the heavy lifting on this. I, I like to joke around if I'm giving a, a talk about this. And I'll hold up a copy of the comic book, uh, you know, and it's this sort of beautiful cover. It's got a red sunset on it. And then in like 1970s Kung Fu look, you've got the 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 head of the main character. And it's this African-American man with kind of a Fu Manchu beard. And he's staring out in a, a wise way at the reader. And, the, and then there he is also in his uh, martial arts uniform. And then there's little head and shoulders images of all the other characters in the book. And I'll hold up a copy of the the comic book and say, yeah, you know, when I was an undergraduate, I was the cartoonist for the school newspaper. And that experience made me confident that I could never do the art for this comic book, which is why I was really grateful to get in touch with Michael Watson and his team. So it was a fantastic process. I think they learned a lot about copyright. And it was kind of funny because every now and then Michael would, you know, just off to the side say, you know, you say this in the book, should I be talking about my own copyright for my images and comics with the galleries that I'm working with? And I said, yeah, you should talk to a lawyer about that because I'm not one. But those kinds of conversations, I learned an awful lot from their team. And I think they learned some things from me too. So it was a wonderful conversation and collaboration. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit more specifically about how you use the comic book in the kind of teaching work that you do uh, and what kind of reactions people have had to it when you present it to them or maybe when people contact you uh, offline to kind of let you know their experience about the book or how they've used it. With the work that I do, since I teach teachers how to teach, I do teach courses myself. My primary work, though, is doing development work for other faculty colleagues at my university and then also speaking and consulting with colleges and universities across the world. When I'm talking about the Copyright Ninja, I'm usually not talking about the comic book itself. I'm usually talking about those general principles and helping colleagues to have that back of the envelope sense and really permission to think for themselves and think critically within this space so that they don't have to run to their, their campus lawyer or their librarians for every single decision that they're making. Usually I'll say, by the way, I also have published a comic book about this. And what I've found is that it's faculty developers at other colleges and universities who are ordering 30 and 40 copies of it and then using it as a study resource, as a prize for after faculty development sessions, and as a way to help people to have something they can refer to that is entertaining and not terribly dry. Uh, like the article that I published back in 2014. The feedback that I get from people usually revolve around two poles. The first one is, thank you very much for making what seemed daunting into something that I understand how I can take an action. And that was really my primary goal with the book, was creating something that allowed people not to have to be lawyers themselves or experts in copyright or IP nerds like me, but to you know, be experts in their own subject field 
and yet feel confident that they knew enough. And then the second kind of feedback that I would get is, when are you going to do the thing on this particular subset? When are you going to do the thing for us colleagues in Australia? When are you going to do the thing about music copyright, which is thorny and something I probably never do, but love to talk about. And my, my challenge with this is this is likely going to be the only copyright ninja. It says number one in a series, just in case, you know, you leave a cliffhanger and in terms of, you know, will the copyright ninja show up somewhere else? Who knows? But, uh, you know, I've got lots of other other projects rolling and, and other books and things that I'm writing. But but people have been people have been really appreciative of somebody not talking to them like everything is a legal question to answer. And really, that's the secret of the whole comic book. And I think the secret to copyright for people who aren't legal professionals at your colleges and universities is that. If you treat everything as a case question, then people will treat everything as a case question, you know, following your example. And with the comic book and with all of the work that I've been doing as an advocate, I've been trying to help lower those barriers for people to be able to make copies, understand how their use cases work and protect their own materials and share their own materials more freely. And when we go to things like fair use copying, like getting permission from rights owners, like abiding by a license, like Creative Commons licensing, that opens up so many possibilities for instructors, for designers that they didn't recognize they had in their toolkits before. So the response has been overwhelmingly positive. And I've had lots of folks come to me and say, hey, by the way, I am an IP lawyer. And have you considered this or that or the other? So it's been kind of a masterclass for me as well to keep strengthening my own practices and keep learning and keep growing. Well, so in light of that, Tom, in closing, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what projects you're working on now, both in the copyright space and in related kind of broader perspectives in relation to the pedagogy of higher education. Thank you, Brian. Um, one of the one of the two things that's on everybody's minds right now are as we are shifting away from emergency remote teaching, how can we take the good parts of that and continue doing those things? How can we take the flexibility? How can we lower barriers for our students and for ourselves in terms of just access to materials, but also each other, us as facilitators and instructors, our support staff at our colleges and universities and our communities? So in those ways, um, I've been working on a number of different articles. I'm just going to have one in the Chronicle of Higher Education coming out pretty soon here called Regarding the Wrong Tower and uh, talk about how people gravitate toward control over due dates and late points and attendance policies when what we should really be after is giving students a little bit more agency, control, voice, and choice in the spaces where they're learning. So that's one great big thing. The other great big thing is my next book, I'm working on it now, uh, tentatively titled Presenting Information for Those in Higher Education. 
most of us never learned how to give a presentation, whether that's a lecture, whether it's a conference presentation, whether you're talking to your senior college or university leadership. Most of us don't know that you shouldn't pack a PowerPoint full of words and then just read those words to people. And so I'm putting together a very small book. I'm hoping to come out with it in maybe a year, year or two here about what are the good practices that everybody can follow? Like having all of your research data and all of your details, but have that in the handout for after. How do you primarily give visual information and then describe it in a way that invites people to ask questions or get a simple understanding? Most folks don't know that a presentation or even a conversation like this Ipsy Dixit podcast is really just to get listeners interested, get them engaged. And then if they want more, they can come to you and find more. So that's my big project that I'm working on now. Thanks. That sounds amazing. Well, when it's done, I hope you'll come back on the podcast and talk about it because it's the kind of thing I think would be really beneficial for the listenership. Well, grand. And uh, I look forward to doing that. Brian, thank you so much for having me. And thanks to all of your listeners for being on this episode. And uh, we'll see you out there in the internets.